It's March 13, 1975. Just around noon, a group of left-wingers are hanging around in a city street in Milan. There's nothing especially unusual going on, with six activists looking fairly innocuous posted around as lookouts, and two trying to play it cool outside of an apartment building. After about an hour, another young man named Sergio Ramelli leaves the apartment. He has long hair, dressed casually, and doesn't seem too concerned as he walks to his scooter. But his days are numbered. The two leftists, Marco Costa and Giuseppe Ferrari Bravo, are waiting for him to come out so they, quote, cook him, slang for rough him up. A few years prior, this would have been a somewhat normal, if brutal, thing. But by 1975, tensions had torn Italian society apart at the seams. There'd been a series of political killings that year, following on the heels of a string of deadly bombings carried out by the Black Order, a fascist terrorist organization. Romelli was number one on the list of people who the left wanted to attack, because he was a well-known and violent member of the Italian social movement, the nation's fascist party, which had become increasingly exposed for its proximity to the spiraling political violence. Costa and Bravo leapt upon Romelli, hitting him with iron bars and wrenches, a popular tool, so popular among the extra-parliamentary street groups of the day that one of the more feared associations was called the Plumbers. They continued to brutally beat Romelli unconscious until a woman yelled at them from a balcony, and they dispersed. An ambulance was called, taking the fascist to a hospital, where he lay in a coma for 47 days, when he finally died of his injuries. It was only the latest in a sequence of tit-for-tat killings, symptomatic of the increasing normalcy of political violence. And it was broadly seen as upping the ante in terms of ambushes and attacks. For the organization implicated, Avanguardia Operaia, it would sound a death knell. But for the broader political scene, it only indicated further the necessity to take to arms, whether in aggression or defense, amid the horrifying descent into the years of Lent. To really understand the shock that the murder of Sergio Romelli caused both in the right and the left, it's important to understand the group that would be effectively blamed for the attack, Avanguardia Operaia. One of the most effective and largest of the extra-parliamentary groupings that emerged during the so-called Generation of 68, Avanguardia Operaia never committed to violence of any kind. In fact, they were one of the few groups that openly repudiated the use of arms, let alone such vague but grandiose phrases as armed struggle, urban guerrilla, or the armed party. This may seem sort of ironic or facile, but for the time it was a strong political stance. The other groups, born at around the same time between 1968 and 1969, had far less compunction about the use of violence or armed struggle. Lotto Continua, which I've seen some claim had a membership of around 70,000, although it was probably substantially fewer than that, had by 1973 adopted the line of the general clash, arguing for taking to arms in order to prepare for a kind of social war. Potere Operaio, which probably had around 12,000 members before its own disintegration in that same year of 1973, effectively fell apart over the question of armed struggle. But Avanguardia Operaio was somewhat different. Part of this is because Avanguardia Operaio had a fairly conservative doctrine for a far-left group. Founded in 1968 as a nominally Trotskyist organization, they embraced the prominent pro-Maoist tendencies within the New Left, but they rejected Stalinism. They agreed with other groups that the Communist Party could not functionally act in the workers' interests due to their tendency to compromise with the bosses, while capitalism appeared to make up for losses in one place by hiking up prices in another. Similarly, they saw the unions as often acting against the interests of the workers. In some cases, you'd have different unions representing a group of factory workers and using one group's intransigence as a way to broker separate deals. Plus, a victory here or there didn't threaten the overall system, 
which reforms only promised to improve eventually, whereas workers all over Italy were suffering, some of them laboring full-time without even enough money to afford an apartment. In the words of Sandro Di Toni, quote, It seemed like the most serious structured organization with a presence across the workers of Milan. It seemed like an embryo for a party of class. In the sense that they had accepted Maoist ideas without embracing Stalinism, Avanguardia Operaia were more like another big group, Loto Continua, but while the latter organized with students and workers to try to develop a general struggle outside of the factories with rent strikes, transportation strikes, and mass insurrection, Avanguardia Operaia instead adopted an energetic approach to organizing committees within factories. Another member named Francesco Forcolini recalled, quote, the difference with the other groups was radical. We accused Loto Continua of spontaneism. We went with the objective to construct the vanguard of the proletariat, recreate the Communist Party, purified of that which we held to be an unacceptable deviation, Stalinism. As early as 1968, Avanguardia Operaia activists were arguing against the socialization of the student struggle, insisting instead on an economic platform on which to base the movement. The biggest organizational body of the students, which was called the student movement, was too, concern too unconcerned with the social struggle, Avanguardia Operaia argued. They wanted to just change the way that society worked, turn hierarchies on their heads, destroy the older traditions, but they didn't have an economic plan, so it would all just result in reforms and aesthetic change. On the other end was Potere Operaio, which argued for political power. Again, it was insufficient to merely win strikes here and there as part of a larger political platform to advance an insurrection against the state through the political formulation of a united working class. The content of the proletariat as a class was less interesting or useful to Avanguardia Operaia than the direct formulation of a workers' party led by a vanguard that would be able to coordinate those struggles into a revolutionary force. The last extra-parliamentary grouping, much smaller than either Potere Operaio or Lota Continua, was called the Manifesto, Il Manifesto, which had spun out of the Communist Party after attempting to democratize its structures from within. Il Manifesto started a newspaper that ultimately joined with and then broke with Potere Operaio in quick succession, but it had a pretty strong influence despite its size. But Avanguardia Operaia was really its own entity. It abided by the rules of democratic centralism, through which a leadership committee would rule under a mandate from the members, who could raise concerns within the committee to be decided on judiciously. There would be collaboration with other groups for big protests or even within factory committees, but the specific character of each became a kind of ideological turf, and the distinctions were largely understood and respected, despite being the source of disagreements and arguments. These committees, Comitati Unitari di Base, or Unity Committees of the Base, weren't a particularly novel idea, having been conceived by the workerist movement as a way of directing workers' power in contradistinction to the machinations of the party and the unions. However, never underestimate the Trotskyist penchant for meetings, notes, bulletins, and above all else, procedure. Avanguardia Operaia really sort of fit the stereotypes of the strangely prim, twee Leninists who start to gain hegemony within organizations by mastering process, recognizing the significance of small agenda points, and cultivating a kind of vanguardist hierarchy. I mean, it's in their name, right? Avanguardia Operaia, or Workers' Vanguard. The third worldists of Loto Continua were headstrong, brazen, and they loved to fight. They used supercharged rhetoric and adopted a more subjective philosophy in accordance with directing spontaneous activity towards broader goals. The quasi-Leninists of Potere Operaio were excellent at organizing shop floor scale direct action, coming up with and disseminating unique strike tactics and highly intellectualized discourse towards Extremely specific targeted attacks on infrastructure and property, especially when it came to industrialists. 
But Avanguardia Operaia didn't do the violence thing as much and directed the lion's share of their energy towards developing a network of factory committees towards ultimately revolutionary aims. So let's talk more about the unitary committees of the base. The unitary committees of the base emerged from the changing conditions of the Italian working class. The 1950s was characterized by two things for workers, a rampant development regime that brought about an economic boom for the country on one hand, and a crushing feeling of desperation and isolation amid the agreement by the Communist Party and the unions to collaborate with the course of progress and reject hostile labor strategies. Workers in the industrial north toiled in factories with very low safety standards and no conception of the environmental pollution or the hazards they subjected their workers to. They also had extremely low pay relative to the cost of living. I've talked a lot about the workers' struggles of the late 1950s and early 1960s in previous episodes, especially about the long 68, so I won't go too much into that. You can also hear about the Mezzogiorno in the episodes on the Reggio Revolt, featuring Danny Gold of the Underworld Pod. Sufficient to say that by the mid-1960s, workers were rising up spontane spontaneously, and the Potere Operaio group believed that it was their role to help provide form and organization to the spontaneous uprisings, thereby manifesting a revolutionary left in conformity with the workers' demands, but organized enough to have a demonstrable long-term effect. In the words of Marco Scavino, a former leader of Potere Operaio, quote, the alternative was not to create small minority groups, but to conquer a position of strength in the struggles from which to contend with the party and the trade unions over the political direction of class conflict. In 1966, an independent strike committee was formed at the Milan technological company Sitzimens, representing some 7,000 workers and setting the stage for the growth of factory committees there and elsewhere the Pirelli plant would follow with the establishment of the Unitary Committee of the Base in 1967. This was a crisis not only for the bosses, but the Communist Party as well. The four factories in the workers' district of Sesto San Giovanni accounted for 30,000 employees. Innocenti numbered 5,000, Om had 3,500, and Brown Bovary 3,000. We're talking about over 60,000 workers just in eight factories, counting Alfa Romeo, which included 22,000 workers. And the workers were radicalizing apace. Soon, there was a unitary committee of the base, which I'll refer to as Cub from now on, in Alfa Romeo, the sweetest peach of them all. Another emerged in Cobas, and then Fiat, probably the most militant of the Cubs. This was a major opportunity for the young cadres radicalized in the student movement and the struggle in the streets to actually put their ideas into action. Avanguardia de Operaia had picked up Leninism in study groups, applied their thoughts to the formulation of a nucleus of organizers, and then went into the factories with sincere dedication. In the words of Gigi Moretti, an Avanguardia de Operaia member who worked at the Cruze factory, quote, it was all about solidarity. We were all together, eating, taking a vacation when we had the money, and the children went from one house to another without any problem. This was my entry into Avanguardia de Operaia. In 1970, I was convinced by the consistency between what was said and what was done. It wasn't like they fired off shots and then you found yourself alone. The commitment was total, absorbed every minute of the day. We did everything together. A thing that has always guided my action was that wherever my group goes, I would go too, even if I didn't agree 100%. But not all cubs were as homogenous and fraternal as the one in Cruzet. In 1967, the Pirelli syndicate of the Cegeiela, the major left-wing trade union, brokered a contract that a lot of workers disagreed with. So in 1968, a cub was formed within Pirelli by a group of activists. Avanguardia de Operaia member Luigi Cipriani joined the cub and found it divided by different opinions and people. As early as 1969, according to Mario Mosca, one of the founders of the cub, 
we commenced down the path of the Red Brigades, and there were extra-parliamentary groups with a truly exhausting function. Everyone tried to exploit the struggles, to put their hat on it, some who did it correctly and others who did not. And the clash between the various groups threatened to reflect on us too, the vanguards inside the factory. All this has never affected the totality of workers. Ours was a movement of mental liberation. It was the desire to live a completely different experience. The Cub was dominated by Lota Continua originally, but over the course of the next few years, Avanguardia de Operaio would increasingly gain a hold over the, cl- the Cub in Pirelli. And, as that was happening, the Pirelli Cub also joined forces with other factory committees in different factories around Milan to create the Metropolitan Political Collective. Also involved in the Metropolitan Political Collective was a group of political activists who came out of the student movement in Trento led by Renato Curcio and Marco Gall. As Avanguardia Operaia gained hegemony in Pirelli, Mario Mosca abandoned the Cub and joined Curcio and Cagol to create a more militant organization which would ultimately become the Red Brigades. I talked about that whole process in the episode on the formation of the Red Brigades with Shane Burley. So you can go back to that and check it out. So, the Cubs could be spaces for the organization of Leninist cadres, but they could also be contested spaces that could create the foundation for spin-off groups with a more violent strategy. But the more people left the Cubs, either to create more violent groups or to engage more in the social struggle, the more Avanguardia de Operaio was able to consolidate its own power within the factories. By 1973, the group had grown to probably more than 10,000 members, with groups in every region of Italy. And while they viewed the Cubs as Soviets or workers' councils that would ultimately become the most effective economic network for an eventual revolutionary strike, the Cubs could also be be utilized to engage in the social struggle. During the early 1970s, they came out in support of the big waves of housing occupations that took place in the slums of Milan and Rome. In 1974, they helped organize housing occupations and a mass protest in the Piazza della Scala, including some 60,000 people for the right to housing. By coordinating workers through the Cub and engaging in the social struggle for housing, Avanguardia de Operaia might be able to shake the hegemony of the reformists and cause a kind of crisis within the state. By the early 1970s, it had become achingly apparent that the struggle between left and right required some kind of coordinated defense effort to ensure the protection of Avanguardia de Operaia's members. The group formed a kind of steward detachment called the Servizio de Ordine, which I'll just translate as the security service. This group would defend marches and pickets, sustain home occupations, and also help out with other groups, particularly Potere Operaio in Rome and the student movement in Milan. And each group had its own way of handling these problems. For Lotto Continua, militant anti-fascism meant mass struggles, getting as many people in the streets as possible, and opposing the fascists where they organized. For the Red Brigades, fighting fascists meant burning their cars and by the mid-1970s raiding their offices and even assassinating individual members. Potere Operaio, on the other hand, developed a clandestine secret organization within their group dedicated to more secretive acts of violence. The secret organization within Potere Operaio was called Illegal Work and remains sort of opaque. Nobody really knows a lot about what they did, but it seems to have been run by a pretty dangerous guy named Valerio Morucci. We'll talk more about Valerio Morucci in future episodes. Just to give a hint as to Morucci's character, he wrote this about reading a book by Mario Tronti, a famous Marxist intellectual, to a girl that he liked. Quote, Those words inebriated me, and I hoped that they would inebriate her as well. So I sat down on the couch with her stretched out, my hand in her hair, and I read her a passage. But in any case, whoever said that this was the pinnacle of human civilization, large-scale industry and its science are not the prize in the class struggle, 
they're the very terrain of that struggle. And so long as the terrain is occupied by the enemy, we need to fire upon it without tears for the roses. I was close to orgasm, but for her, nothing. It was like I was reading Little Red Riding Hood. Weird, weird guy, Marucci. Weird, weird guy. As it happens, Tronti, the guy whose book Marucci read to his hot date, had rejoined the Communist Party in 1971 and expressed regret for his workerist rhetoric as, quote, late romantic. Anyway, another name associated with the clandestine section is Orestes Calzone, who was part of the student movement and suffered a terrible spinal injury as a result of the clash with the fascists, which we talked about in the first episode of the pod on the Battle of Valle Giulia. And lastly, it's been alleged that Franco Piperno was the leader. He was also in the student movement with Scalzone. One thing you can say about Potero Parayo is that they were pretty good at hiding the extent of their power and their activities a lot of which were done in the capacity of applying their theories on the refusal of work and workers' militancy. But those theories were sort of contentious even within the group itself. Even at their founding, Potero Parayo already had some significant tendencies emerging within the group. Some argued for the hard struggle of the mass worker, while others want to focus on specific contract fights by building up power within factories through councils. Locals formed in Venice, Rome, and other cities, with the Roman office being the best organized, probably. They had headquarters, a solid group of organizers, and generally handled affairs responsibly, and that made the Rome office a magnet for fascist attacks. But debates were growing as to how to handle the question of violence, so a second conference was called of all the locals to meet in 1970. One group called for the seizure of power through the dismantling of the state and the ultimate establishment of a workers' government or something of that nature. This had anarchist tendencies, but was also very Marxist, so it sort of walked that council communist line that somewhat resembles the writings of Lenin shortly before the 1917 revolution. This didn't really jive too well with some of the older heads in the group, like Sergio Bologna, who thought it was too much of a deviation from their initial interests, which lay simply in organizing within the working class to build power through successive political victories, both against the parties and the bosses. After the ensuing conference in Rome in 1971, Potero Parayo finally committed itself to the armed struggle, calling itself the, quote, party of insurrection and the seizure of power. Potero Aparayo was already publishing stuff from the Red Brigades and the Gruppi di Azione Partigiana, which Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli had established as a kind of partisan nostalgic movement to attack critical infrastructure. We talked earlier in the Feltrinelli episode about how Feltrinelli's group was pretty tight with both members of the Red Brigades and Potero Aparayo, and an abortive meeting was attempted in Switzerland between Feltrinelli and the latter group. It's said that in 1971, after the Rome Conference, the two had attempted to consolidate into an underground network of clandestine armed groups. Among the most vocal of Potereo Parayo's leadership in favor of building the armed party was Franco Piperno, who declared, quote, the need to weld terror to the mass movement and to anchor the armed struggle to politics at a May meeting of the executive in Florence the following year. It seemed like the conditions of class struggle in Italy were changing by the year, and the older workerist leadership of Potere Operaio were having trouble hanging on to the core of what brought them to the group. Were they helping seed radical revolutionary politics among workers, developing their militancy and class consciousness while usurping the role of the unions in the party, or were they becoming an insurrectionary group focused on building up armed cadres and increasing political tensions in order to prepare for a moment of ultimate insurrection? It's kind of funny because this crisis in both workerist groups, Lotta Continua and Potera Operaio, really came to a head in the same year, 
But while Lota Continua is able to continue moving forward with their massive infrastructure and more flexible agenda, Potero Parayo's extraordinarily developed and more complex theoretical rigors made the question of forming the armed party far more problematic. And remember what else was happening in 1973? You had Nico Azzi's failed train bombing, you had the fascist riot of Black Thursday that led to a death of a police officer, uh, in April, and on its heels, a massive show of unity by all the forces of the left emerged in the streets, followed, unfortunately, by an arson attack against a fascist organizer's house in the Prima Valle district of Rome, which ended up killing his two boys. In the ensuing investigation, left-wing militants associated with Potere Operaio were accused this is still a bit hazy. I did a bonus episode about the Prima Valle fire, which is a really important and significant case. But one of the assailants has come forward and confessed, and he had tried to get into the clandestine structure within Potere Operaio, but was rejected. At any rate, the connection between the Prima Valle fire and Potere Operaio put additional pressure on the group. And at the end of May, they held a conference in Rosolina where Piperno and Scalzone finally declared the need to create an armed organization rather than a party of mere strikes and occupations. With Antonio Negri and others dissenting, this split ultimately broke up the group, causing its members to splinter in a number of ways. The folks who supported the party of insurrection formed local independent nuclei in a loose network called Autonomia Organizata or Autonomia Operaia, and other members who adhered to clandestinity including the secret section's apparent leader, Valerio Morucci, signed up with the Red Brigades. And those who had wanted to form the nucleus of a new proletarian party enlisted with Avanguardia Operaia. When it came to armed violence, Avanguardia Operaia didn't make the same move that the other two made. It was a hotly debated subject, but Avanguardia de Operaia had developed more within the Cubs, and their reputation was one of an extremely serious organization with less flash than the others. When the Red Brigades kidnapped the right-wing judge, Mario Sossi, which we'll discuss in a future episode, the Avanguardia de Operaia denounced it as, quote, yet another provocative act detrimental to the class struggle. But this didn't exempt them from the violence of the day. Quite the contrary, in fact. It seems that Avanguardia de Operaia was one of the few extra-parliamentary groups whose members were killed, not only in the tit-for-tat violence that came later, but also in the massacres carried out by fascist groups involved in the strategy of tension. Things became increasingly heated after the failure of the Rosareventi and Sonio coups and the banning of Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale, when the Ordine Nero, or Black Order, bombed an anti-fascist demonstration in Brescia at the Piazza della Loggia, killing nine people, including two Avanguardia Operaia members. The Piazza della Loggia massacre hit Avanguardia Operaia especially hard, and the group decided to create a new kind of political structure assembled around community defense against possible fascist attacks. And this would form the basis for the beginning of a new stage in violent conflict between the extra-parliamentary left and the far right. Toward the end of that year, 1974, Avanguardia Operaia's chapter in Rome confronted a fascist rally led by Ordine Nuovo co-founder Pino Rauti. The rally assembled in the district of Monteverde, a few kilometers away from the meeting of thousands of police who actually supported unions. Rauti wanted to march with members of the hard right in opposition to police deemed weak and lame by fascists. The Rome chapter of Avanguardia de Operaia organized a counter-protest, and Rauti started mouthing off to them, 
A fight broke out. Cops responded with tear gas, and the fighting raged on amid a blanket of smoke. In the middle of the fighting, gunshots started going off, and it wasn't coming from the police. This would go down as the first time guns factored into a clash between the state, the left, and the far right, but it wouldn't be the last. In the aftermath of the Battle of Monteverde, 24 people were injured, two seriously injured, 12 were arrested, and a car was in flames. The Avanguardia Operaia claimed that the use of the gun was, in this case, justified, but for the organization in general, it marked a significant escalation that would need to be scaled back. The organization called on its militants to abandon the piazza, stop fighting in social spaces, and recommit to labor organizing. But that commitment wouldn't last long. Three months later, a group of 300 police and carabinieri posted up at the University of Rome to facilitate an assembly of three students who were members of the Fronte Anticomunista. The night before, two left-wing students had been sent to the hospital by a group of fascists wielding hammers. So a group of Avanguardia Operaia showed up at the assembly to take on the three fascists and the 300 police that were protecting them. In the resulting frenzy, 29 police and carabinieri were injured, 28 students were arrested, and a police car was torched. Within two weeks after that, more violence erupted in Rome outside of the trial for, the t- for two of the leftists accused of setting the Prima Valle fire. Police encircled the courthouse, and leftists attacked them with rocks, molotovs, and other projectiles. The fighting raged at the courthouse for the next couple of days, leading the fascist party, the Italian social movement, to hold a protest against political violence, for whatever that was worth. Whenever the fascists held rallies, it was more a pretext of organizing attacks, and fighting raged between fascists and anti-fascists in the street throughout the morning. In the crossfire, a civilian was shot in the leg and a reporter was hit with a brick. At noon, the court adjourned for lunch and the fascists returned to their headquarters. But the anti-fascist side followed them there and amassed outside, attacking the entrance and setting it on fire. The fascists fled through the side door and were met with a hail of bullets one of which entered the skull of a Greek student from Athens named Mikis Montakas. Brought back inside briefly to administer first aid, Montakas was brought to a hospital. He underwent two hours of surgery, but was pronounced dead at 6.30 p.m. And Montakas wasn't the only person shot that day. Other than the civilian who was shot in the leg, two others had been hit with bullets and another 20 were injured. It was later determined that the killer was Alvaro Lojacono, a member of Potere Operaio who had shown up to support the former members of his organization accused of the Prima Valle massacre. So, from the first use of guns in street combat in December 1974 at the Battle of Monteverde, By the end of February, people were already getting shot in the middle of Rome, with Montakas the first radical shot and killed by a member of an extra-parliamentary left-wing group in an act of organized political violence. And Potere Operaio, which no longer existed, and Avanguardia Operaia, which decried gun violence, were right in the middle of it. The following month, the locus of struggle moved back to Milan with an even more brutal killing. This one was targeted, it was cold-blooded, and it was motivated by pure animus. In Milan, a guy named Sergio Romelli had been a giant pain in the left's ass. He was a fascist and had participated, from what I've read, in the events of Black Thursday. A student at the Molinari Technical Institute, where Avanguardia had effective leadership over the student movement, he had also fucked with a student protest in March of the previous year, so they had a lasting relationship, and there's more. 
After the bombing at the Piazza della Loggia, the Red Brigades had raided the Italian social movement's headquarters thinking that the Padua cell of the Ordine Nuovo had been involved. In fact, they weren't far off because the perpetrator, Carlo Maria Maggi, was quite close to the Paduan cell. However, in the event, they murdered two members of the Italian social movement, and as a result, Romelli dedicated a class presentation to the theme of something related to the politics of the hour, leading other students to write on the board, quote, this is the theme of a fascist. The student movement pressured him to buff some fascist graffiti at the Technical Institute in early 1975. The following month, in February, his father took him to school to complain and move him to a private school, but they were both attacked and beaten. After this incident, four youths on a couple of motorcycles wearing balaclavas drive up to the Technical Institute, jump the short wall to the parking lot, hit a car in the parking lot of the Technical Institute with a Molotov, and then escape on their bikes. Firefighters show up to put out the blaze, and people gather around, but eventually the fire reaches the gas tank and the car explodes, injuring 18 people, including the firefighters. There's a lot that's unclear about the details of this attack, but it looks like it had something to do with Romelli, whether it was from the fascist side or the left-wing side. Afterwards, some new graffiti appeared outside of Romelli's house, stating, Romelli, fascist, you're first on the list. And it was members of the Technical Institute student movement, more specifically the security services of the Avanguardia de Operaia, that would meet out the punishment. These were the guys who would cook Romelli outside of his apartment, beating him unconscious with wrenches and iron bars. He fell into a coma in the hospital where he languished for more than 40 days, finally dying of cardiac arrest on April 29th. But while Romelli was dying in a hospital, the fascists would launch a significant counterattack. A political rally planned by Lotto Continua and Avanguardia di Operaia took off through the streets on April 16, 1975, to protest high rents and call for the right to housing. The campaign had been widely popular, but Avanguardia di Operaia added the support of the Cubs to Lotto Continua's social organizing. But a breakaway group decided to march to the university, passing along the way three Italian social movement student activists. Two of the students fled, but Antonio Bragion had a leg problem and he couldn't run as fast. Bragion did make it to his car, but the group of leftists started to attack it, rocking the mini and breaking the glass with blunt objects. The fascists had taken their cues from what happened in Rome a few weeks ago, and Bragion was armed with a pistol. He popped off a few shots, hitting a leftist named Claudio Varelli and killing him on the scene. The next day, leftists took to the streets again to protest the death of Varali. Things were getting heated, clashes ensued with riot police, and reinforcements were called in. It had been known since the days of the student occupations that the Carabinieri liked to drive their cars and trucks dangerously close to protesters, often close enough to hit them with truncheons while driving at fast speeds. Well, in this case, on April 17th, a Carabinieri vehicle jumped the curb and slammed into an anti-fascist protester named Giannino Zibacchi. He died shortly thereafter. On that same day, in Turin, a 25-year-old Fiat worker who was a member of Lotto Continua named Tonino Michike was shot in the head by a member of the fascist union Cisnal named Paolo Fiocco. Things were absolutely spiraling out of control. There had been three leftists killed in two days in two different cities. In Florence, the following day, a protest was called over the killings of Varali, Zibaki, and Michike. The protest was attacked by plainclothes cops, and struggles ensued. As conflict started to rage between the left and police, gunshots are exchanged between sides with an Autonomia Operaia member named Francesco Panicchi shooting at the cops. In the melee, a plainclothes cop accidentally shot and killed a pedestrian, a 22-year-old Communist Party member named Rodolfo Boschi. He was shot in the back of the head. 
So that was four leftists killed, two by fascists and two by police, along with one pedestrian killed in the crossfire, all between the beating of Ramelli and his death six weeks later. The Battle of Monteverde had popped things off, and the killings of Montacas and Ramelli got the murders started. Avanguardia Operaia had been involved in all three of those incidents, despite the fact that they had probably been the most adverse to joining the armed struggle to begin with. Naturally, the state would come down hard on the intense violence. In the wake of the Romelli murder, Avanguardia Operaio was condemned by virtually all sides as a subversive paramilitary group. The murder was deemed an apolitical criminal act by all major political parties, with the killers admonished as smug, complacent fools who had committed a horrifying and anti-democratic act. An official inquiry was set up, and the Avanguardia Operaia offices were raided in Milan and Rome, but the police didn't find any explosives or weapons. Repressive measures were instituted regardless. On May 22, 1975, the Italian parliament passed a law named after Oronzo Reale that instituted preventative detention under the premises of suspicion of terrorism. Furthermore, the police were given carte blanche to shoot first and ask questions later if their efforts could be shown to have been conducted in attempts to prevent a massacre, homicide, kidnapping, armed robbery, derailment, or other such attacks. And finally, the equipment of what became known as hard protests were banned. So no more helmets or hard protective gear at protests. The Reale law was incredibly controversial for the expanded powers it gave to police, who had just killed three people in connection with political protests. To arrest people without any cause other than supposed suspicion of participation in political violence. Also, police impunity had been a big issue, and now it was basically legally supported. Meanwhile, the only tools that protesters had to defend themselves from police charges and attacks were being taken away. Suddenly, the reality of police force had become much more imposing. None of this would curtail the rising violence. In fact, it would simply make things worse. Because now that the political enemies had taken up the gun, large protests were almost becoming an impediment. If you're going to be shooting at one another and at the police, you don't want a lot of innocent people around who you might accidentally shoot. These people will be running everywhere, panicking, and probably causing unwanted casualties. Instead, you want a guerrilla squad that can move rapidly through the city, change outfits rapidly, shoot and escape, take cover behind cars and in deep entrances. In reality, the Reale Law might have been impediment to the development of the years of lead a few years prior to its institution, but even then, a vast majority of the violence was coming from the far right. The principal reason for the movement to armed struggle around 1973 was the constant and unbroken tidal wave of fascist violence amounting to exposed coups. But there were other reasons as well. With the military coup against Salvador Allende in Chile, most leftists in Italy took the threat of a military dictatorship extremely seriously. Sure, the Communist Party could play by the rules and maybe win an election, but the fascists had massive support among the reactionary liberals and the right wing of the Christian Democrats. Not to say anything of the military. The extra-parliamentary left took up arms in 1973 as a serious reaction to global events. Paramount among the far left's influences towards armed struggle was Feltrinelli, the publisher who had visited Castro in Cuba frequently, been arrested in Bolivia, and talked about guerrilla warfare in the Italian countryside. Feltrinelli's vision of returning to partisan conflict was dated for sure, but it captured the imaginations of the younger generation. Plus, he developed a network of safe houses that were used apparently by the members of the Red Brigades and members of Potere Operaio, not only promoting his actions, but seeking to collaborate as well. And beyond that, 
Recall that Black Thursday wasn't some distant memory. It had taken place in April 1973 and was followed the next year by two bloody bombings that didn't just kill indiscriminately but obviously targeted anti-fascists. The white coup, Rosa de Venti, those had been figured out. They'd been quashed by the center-right, and the fascists were, the, for the first time, abandoned by their partners in the strategy of tension. The Reale Law showed that the state had totally lost the reins over political violence in Italy, and it was trying to scale everything back significantly. The fact that it was passed by Aldo Moro's government shows both that the center-left was being led to compromise with the right-wing side in order to remain in power, and that the law was probably legitimately meant to forestall the impending climax of political terror by the far right as well. But this would also make Moro a marked man. Already the apparent target of the Black Order's bombing of the Italicus train in 1974, Moro was now responsible in the eyes of every revolutionary in Italy for the tightening of the grip of fascism around the throats of the Italian people. The story of the Avanguardia Operaia is really the story of how even the nerdiest, process-oriented mama's boy Trotskyists became warped and demented through the onslaught of massacres that composed the machinery of the strategy of tension. This group, which originally wanted to seize the means of production by proliferating war workers' councils throughout factories in Italy, in adherence to a proletarian party committed to democratic centralism, had by the end of 1975 been implicated in a spate of political murders that were blamed for the disintegration of the country. How did these pocket protector-wearing, horn-rimmed glasses dorks end up in the front line of the burgeoning armed struggle? If you're like the Italian state at the time, you would probably blame the affable and energetic professor Antonio Negri, who had helped get Potere Operaio started and became one of their intellectual luminaries. He's the guy they ultimately blamed for all of European terrorism. But the reality is much denser and much more interesting. If you look at the sequence of events, the descent into violence was practically unavoidable. The deployment of fascists by elements of the state and wealthy industrialists didn't just increase tensions, it broke open the rage of an entire generation. These kids who wanted to make revolution, as the book title by Katsulo goes, became captivated by ideas and carried away by moments defined by forces outside of their control. In efforts to become more powerful, the structure of their thoughts spilled into a chaotic and spontaneous complex of problematic tendencies captivated by notions of romantic violence passed down by previous generations of Italian partisans. Avanguardia di Operaia didn't just go as far into the fantasies of partisan battles against the rise of fascism in terms of rhetoric, but also in practice. The force of events would push them even further into the fight. Part of this is because, particularly beginning in 1974, they really joined the push toward the social struggle for the right to housing alongside Lotto Continua. And this association brings them into another level of conflict with the fascists, which required defensive measures. And ultimately, the defensive measures turned into tit-for-tat attacks with people like Ramelli in the closed context of the contested spaces of schools and universities. The politics, of fact, the politics of factory organizing became, when generalized, an opening to the politics of vendetta against armed opponents. And it wasn't just Lotto Continua, right? Potere Operaio's dissolution meant that the, its activists were sort of free agents. Some groups formed Autonomia Operaia, some entered the Red Brigades, and some floated around among other organizations. So uh, Avanguardia Operaio would join with militants from Potere Operaio and march in solidarity with those members put on trial for the Prima Valle fire. This, in 1975, was a different kind of heat from what Avanguardia Operaia had been used to. And you could argue that the rejection of armed struggle made the organization that much weaker when it came down to the action in the streets. 
Armed struggle was really the terrain of clandestine organizing. It was the terrain that the Red Brigades had helped construct, and an above-ground worker-based group like Avanguardia de Operaia may not have been strategically attuned enough to avoid crucial mistakes which included the deaths of civilians in street combat. Of course, you could also argue that they wanted revolution, and what else could they have expected? Revolutionaries will always come up against counter-revolutionaries who are all too eager to meet their efforts with crushing violence. So, do you leave the struggle? Do you try to think your way out of the fighting? Or do you pick up the P-38? Well, in Italy, the left wasn't prepared to relive the events of 50 years prior, when the fascists were able to take over the streets, beginning especially in places like Milan and subsequently rising to power. They were desperate to avoid reliving the nightmare of fascism in Italy, which was more than just a specter. So again, was this myth-making reality, reality-making myth, or something in between? Were they trying to fulfill the fantasies of their fathers, or were they trying to intervene directly into a political situation that was teetering on the brink of a fascist coup? The reality is that we're only skimming the surface, even in this extensive podcast of the depth of despair and tragedy that racked the entire nation. The acceleration of conflict that took place from 1973 to 1975 amid financial collapse and huge social transformation only continued over the next few years, with 42 killings and 2,128 incidents of political violence taking place in the year 1977 alone. But before we get to 1977, the so-called Year of the P-38 will have to cross over massive subjects including the formation of Autonomia, the Sosi kidnapping, the creation of the group Prima Linea, and the formation of a new fascist tendency called Terza Posizione, autonomous and in opposition to the older generation of fascist terrorists. So hold tight, because there's a lot more bank robberies, murders, high-profile killings, etc. coming up in the next season of the Years of Lead podcast. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and thank you for joining. If you like what you hear, chip in a few bucks to the Patreon and catch up on some bonus episodes that you might have missed, and give us a five-star rating in the platform of your choice. That's it for now. I'm going to go on a brief hiatus for the rest of the year, but I'll come back in January with more episodes and mayhem. Until then, this has been the Years of Lead Pod. And thank you so much for listening.